and welcome back to the Rogue Agronomist Podcast with Kyle from Stall Agronomy. Um, this week we're going to talk about soil sampling, which is not interesting <laughs> at all or a fun topic, but no, it's actually a good topic. Um, soil sampling is uh, something that uh, a lot of people really uh, actually struggle with. Um, I wouldn't say that um, guys struggle with taking the samples. Um, there's a lot of guys that are struggling with um, where to go with their samples. Um, not necessarily like a place to go with them, but, um, as far as reading them and, and understanding. And, um, I mean, I've had several conversations lately about, um, just modifying some stuff and, you know, we, we always start out with the basics on soil samples. Um, the first three things we really want to look at is pH, um, P and K. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys that when those three are out of whack, uh, we always talk about the lowest stave on the barrel. And the lowest stave on the barrel, if it's a pH, um, phosphorus, or potassium issue, um, those are the three things you really need to work on first before we start messing with sulfur and and soil zinc um, and calcium-magnesium ratios, uh, any of that kind of stuff. So those are the first ones. Um, you know, pH is really important, um, but at the same time, it's not horribly important. Um, if you're in a corn soybean rotation, um, I have a lot of people that'll be in the six, like low sixes, uh, 6.0 to like 6.4, 6.5 on pH, and they're actually pretty good. Um, when we start bringing into more legumes like alfalfa, um, we want to be closer to that 6.6 to 6.8 uh, for alfalfa rotations. But in the majority of soil samples, if your pH is above six, um, you're not doing too bad. Um, the other part of that is with pH, uh, there's quite a few guys that have uh, peat ground or high organic matter soils. So we're talking uh, organic matter that's in the teens or much higher. Um, I've seen it up to in the 20s and, and even potentially higher than that. Um, not often, but... Um, pH, or uh, not pH, but soils that have high organic matter, um, especially peat soils, you could lime and lime and lime, and you're not really going to change much. Um, so there's just so many exchange sites and, and, and so much stuff there to to move around that it's, it's almost not going to be worth your time to try to lime peat soils. Um, it's usually not a problem um, for the most part, but um, there's a lot of guys that um, I've tried it, um, we had a farm that was say in the high fives for a pH and we tried liming and I think even after like 10 tons of lime, it didn't really do anything. So, um, most often if you have high organic matter soils like peats, um, liming is not something you want to do to even try to change the pH. Um, just try to manage it a little differently. Um, make sure you get manganese on the soybeans and, um, make sure your corn's doing okay. I mean, it's, it's not real rocket science there. Um, if your pH is, is low, um, it really doesn't hurt to look at, um, what your subsoil is. Um, we do have a lot of subsoils in Wisconsin that are, uh, dolomitic limestone. Um, so we have high magnesium, um, limestone subsoils or not subsoils, but, um, base layers. And, um, it's, uh, gonna change kind of how you look at it. Um, there's some people that'll talk about which lime source to use. Um, I'm not a huge guy on the calcium magnesium ratio thing. Um, there's quite a few people that are looking at the, the they want to be in a six to one ratio, uh, especially on our heavy clays. Um, that is more of a, um, more of a thing that we talk about with uh, soil structure and, 
and drainage, and um, that's a whole different discussion. But um, lime sources can vary. Um, you want to make sure you've got a, a decent lime that's a um, not a real high, um, real large prills. So when we look at lime sources, working at a 60 to 69 lime, usually versus a 80 to 89. And that's all it is, is how big of a sieve it, it flows through. So 60 to 69 is a high line, like a, a larger piece that um, takes longer to break down and neutralize. Um, 80 to 89 is going to be a, a kind of a more normal um, so, or a lime analysis that's going to, um, to break down fairly decently well. Um, the uh, CCE or calcium carbonate equivalents usually pretty much better on our 80 to 89 lime. Um, you're going to get a if a higher neutralizing value uh, faster. Um, another thing that's a good rule of thumb when we're talking about lime is talking about uh, rates. And there's a lot of university data and a lot of trials that show uh, anything over three or four tons per acre um, is not viable um, in one application. So you don't want to go out there and put, you know, if it's calling for 12 tons, you don't want to put 12 tons on at once. Um, part of that is the amount of lime you're going to be putting out. The other part of that is just cost-based. Um, you know, I mean, for us, a, a typical ton of lime spread is can be anywhere from 15 to 20 bucks a ton. So when you're going out there with 200 ton or 12 tons, you're going out with like 200 some dollars worth uh, per acre of lime. So we, we start looking at uh, cost-benefit analysis on that. Um, usually, if you're making any kind of lime application, um, a lot of co-ops or, or people that are putting lime on will uh, will do a variable rate. Or, I mean, even if it's calling for 12 across the entire field, um, they'll set the high at like four, and then you'll just make sequential applications every two or three years. So that's definitely one thing to look at. Um, so then we're talking about dolomitic versus high cal lime or calcitic lime. Um, calcitic is going to give you usually a little bit better uh, neutralizing value and you're not putting any magnesium back in the soil. So usually calcitic limestone is uh, better, uh, not necessarily cheaper. Um, it's usually quite a bit more. Um, there's not a lot of um, limestone in the United States that's um, not dolomitic. So it's it's definitely harder uh, harder to source. So when I'm looking at limestone sources, um, if you need a tons of lime, um, you probably should be looking at high cal. Uh, if you need a couple tons, um, you really should be just looking at dolomitic and, and dealing with the amount of magnesium that's in it. Um, so P uh, P levels we're looking at uh, for phosphorus. University recommendations in Wisconsin are um, 25 parts per million is, um, is optimal. Uh, anything over 25 is um, excessive. So it depends on what you're doing. Um, if you're doing a nutrient management plan in Wisconsin, anything over 25, it will tell you that you're applying too much. So if you have a 26 parts per million of phosphorus, um, it will typically tell you that uh, you can't apply anymore. Um, the way I wouldn't say the way to get around that, um, but there are allowances, and for the most part, um, Wisconsin is fairly I wouldn't say lax, but they are understanding. Um, there's quite a few plans I've written where um, we're applying um, starter fertilizer or or something similar, and um, we're applying on 
PPMs that are way above, no, I wouldn't say wave, uh, let's say 25 to 30 parts per million, and we're putting starter fertilizer in. Um, I've usually uh, clicked in there that we need to do it because we want to have starter fertilizer for our corn. Um, and it's usually been fine. Uh, I've never had one that's been rejected. So for the most part, um, phosphorus is pretty easy. Um, I will say phosphorus is a lot more important in uh, roots and soil structure in plants than what um, what universities will probably try to talk about. Um, I my my example I always use is my my yard here. Um, I pulled soil samples at my house. I did two different ones. Um, basically, did like the best part of our yard, and I did the worst part of our yard. And um, that was like ten years ago. And the worst part of our yard was really low in phosphorus. Um, everything else was same. It was basically the same. And uh, since we started applying phosphorus, um, the better drained and um, would say is worse looking at that point, uh, but better drained ground on our yard. Um, once we started applying phosphorus, that is the best grass I can grow. Um, it's actually some of the best part of our yard now. So there is definitely something to phosphorus. Um, it's, it's weird in Wisconsin. Um, I worked with different co-ops and different farms, and um, we always gravitate towards pH. And, and to the most part, we actually gravitate to the, uh, the potassium numbers um, really, really quick. Um, P is kind of an afterthought. Um, phosphorus is usually a little bit more expensive, um, but we don't need quite as much um, in our samples as, as potassium. But um, the one thing that potassium does bring is it's really needed in, um, especially in alfalfa rotations. So I think a lot of that is the amount of um, alfalfa that's grown here. Uh, we have a lot of people that pay a lot more attention to it. Um, the other part is we have a lot of guys that used to have dairies or dairies nearby or have farms where um, we'll say it's, it's always the same thing. Um, the fields that are closer to the barn, um, even on farms that we run. So if there was a dairy at one point, which pretty much every farm has, um, the fields that were closer to the barn always had a higher phosphorus value on them. So it's, it's really simple to figure that out. Uh, basically in winter when it was really cold, guys didn't want to drive their open cap tractor all the way across the field to spread manure. So, um, it's just been kind of an afterthought. Um, potassium is always a big thing for us. Um, I think phosphorus numbers, uh, university phosphorus numbers are kind of low. Um, potash wise, um, their recommendations is always about 120 parts per million of potassium. Um, they don't watch it as much. Um, and the reason is phosphorus, it leads to algal blooms when it's mixed with nitrogen in, in water. So potassium isn't that way. So, they're really highly mindful of phosphorus levels. So it's, um, it's one thing to worry about the potassium. Um, it's not really hard to build potassium. Um, it seems fairly easy. Uh, phosphorus numbers are totally different. So when I'm looking at, um, looking at like, a uh, like a soil sample and I see a single digits phosphorus number, um, but I see like 75 or 80 parts per million of potassium. Um, usually guys will gravitate towards that potassium number, but for us, uh, phosphorus is definitely something we don't need to put on the back burner, but this isn't, uh, it was not going to be the huge topic of it, but 
Um, it's just a, a quick look at what I look at when I look at soil samples and, and how I interpret them. But um, uh, the other thing we've been running into lately, uh, I have a few people that are running Bray P1 and Bray P2 tests. So P1 is going to tell you basically um, it's a week, uh, a week run of the phosphorus numbers. And P1 is what we mostly pay attention to. Uh, P1 will give you basically what's usually available to the plant. Um, P2, when you're in a P2 test, um, the Bray P2 will give you what's basically the entire uh, amount of phosphorus in the soil. So not all phosphorus is available to plants. Um, so you could have a Bray P1 number of 25 or 20 and a P2 of like 100 parts million. And that um, that is a huge topic of conversation. It's like, how do we get to that phosphorus uh, that's in the soil and make it more available? Um, that's still something I'm working on. So once again, a topic for another episode, but um, typically if you're running a test and somebody ever asks you if you want a P1 or a P2, um, a lot of our algorithms and data is written off the P1. So don't pay to the point where you think you need the P2. Um, it might be something to look at. Um, if you're really getting into high depth soil analysis, that's something you'll want. Uh, but if you're in a basic, um, basic test, you just want to know the P1 number for right now. Um, and then the other thing, uh, this has actually come up quite a bit lately too. Um, so I, I work and live in Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin bases all of our soil test data off of parts per million. Um, Illinois, if you, it depends on where you are and what labs you're having run your samples. Some labs are running on a pounds per acre. Uh, so if I have a 25 parts per million soil test, um, if I run it on a pounds per acre, it's going to be 50. And the reason behind that is, um, so basically when we figure uh, soil tests or uh, soil in an acre, um, an acre furrow slice of soil is approximately 2 million pounds. And that's that's just a, a number that everyone uses. That's a number you're taught in school. So if we're figuring an acre is 2 million pounds and you have 200 pounds of potash, um, so when you figure on a, a parts per million basis, um, if you have 200 pounds in 2 million acre or 2 million pounds on a parts per million basis, you have 100. So if you have PPM and you want to get converted to pounds per acre, uh, you double it. Uh, if you have pounds per acre and you want to get to uh, parts per million, you divide by two. Um, I've seen that where we had arguments on Ag Talk the other day where somebody was complaining uh, that their soil test was really high. Um, uh, no, it was the other way around. They were complaining it was really low. And somebody who is in a pounds per acre area was like that's just really low i can't believe you have that low of numbers and um we actually had to go through and explain to this guy how to how to un understand and interpret that soil test based on on the lab it was pulled from so um it, it's something that you might not see especially if um you know if you farm in wisconsin and you stay in wisconsin your labs are all going to be basically the same and everybody's going to know what that's going on but if you ever talk to anybody at like a soil clinic, um, I know the Hefty Brothers do them. They're more paying attention to BASAT, but um, if uh, if you ever go to anything like that and you bring a soil sample, um, be prepared to understand the difference between pounds per acre and parts per million. 
Um, and that leads us into our next one. So uh, lately I've had um, quite a few people. Um, I know, I've got a few guys that are in this part. Um, so base saturation um, versus trying to understand our, our, our levels in soil. Um, base sat basically is measuring the amount of um, See, basically it's our, our, our amount of our soil particles that are holding on to stuff. So if our base saturation um, is like a 6% on potassium, um, that's something, it's, it's an interesting way to look at stuff. Um, it's, again, it's a totally, I could do an entire episode on base sat versus um, just our regular way we look at stuff. But um do I really need to look at base saturation? Um, if you're doing a basic soil analysis, um, and you're just starting out and trying to understand what you're doing, uh, I don't think so. Um, base saturation is something that, um, I think we need a little bit better understanding of. Um, the University of Wisconsin has recommended to people that that is not the uh, proper way to look at soil samples. Um, so that, that's kind of neither here nor there. Sometimes I think um, the universities get tied up into some legality stuff. And um, I, I actually had one of um, one of the people I work with at Growmark, um, very high up in Growmark on the agronomy side, that talked to somebody from a state that is in the Midwest. Um, and she was in charge of um, kind of coming up with the recommendations for farms and our, our nutrient management plans. And her thing she told him was that she was a, um, a, well, I can't remember how she said this. Um, she was a, um, environmentalist first and a extension researcher second. So to me, that means that she's caring about the environment. I understand that part. Uh, but the other part of that was, is she's looking out for um, basically Mother Nature before she looks out for what's actually profitable and what's on. And I get both sides. Um, but at the same time, her position to her was secondary to uh, her responsibility to making the environment a better place. Um, I think we all think that as well. You know, I'm, I don't want to be putting my phosphorus down through the water. Um, I don't want to be losing my fertilizer in, in groundwater or in uh, surface runoff. But at the same time, um, you know, we're, we're going to be responsible that way. Um, but I want to know what's going to grow me profitable crops um, and be able to do that at the same time. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of getting off topic. But um, it, it's just it's interesting to look at some of the university people there. There's some people that have, I would say, practical knowledge, um, grew up on a farm. They're from a farming background. Um, they're they're kind of there for the farmer to help the farmers. Um, sometimes we have some university extension people that are not necessarily there to help farms. They're more there to further their own cause and uh, and basically use that as a, a uh, soapbox to get on and, and talk about whatever they want. So um, I think... I would take some of the university's numbers with a grain of salt, but at the same time, there's some really good research that comes out of the university. Um, so it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, yeah, let's get back on topic because that's um, that's just yeah, I'm I'm going on and on. Um, 
the the other things uh, we definitely want to talk about with soil sampling um, once we get off the base saturation thing is um, grid versus zone um, grid size even um, I've got some people that do five acre grids which is the uh, lowest grid number or grid acre number that you can use for soil or nutrient management plans. Um, I've got people doing threes, I got two and a halves, and then there are some that are doing one acre grids. Um, I would say if you're an extreme manager, um, you have several years of um, yield data, um, one to two and a half acre grids is probably right. Um, if you're just starting out with soil sampling um, and you just want to know what your base is, um, or your rented ground, you're not sure how long you're going to have, five-acre grids is probably fine. Um, should I do grid versus zone? Um, zone sampling is better, uh, especially on variable soils. If, um, if you're in central Illinois and you have one soil type, um, the elevation is all the same, or central Indiana, you name it, um, I would say grid is probably your best bet. Um, here in Wisconsin where we have hills and... Um, we have a 50 acre field that used to be 10 different fields and they were all managed differently. Um, zone sampling might be better. Um, I would try to tie in some yield data to create those zones. Um, would I create them off of soil maps? No, because soil maps aren't hundred percent accurate. Uh, would I create them off of, um, off of like satellite imagery? No, uh, definitely use yield data. Um, you can incorporate the soil test data in with that. Um, that'll get you pretty close. Um, but there's going to be different, different management considerations. I always talk about um, satellite and soil sample data is not going to show you where the barn used to be or where that lane used to be or um, where there used to be an old pasture. And, you know, that stuff is not going to show up in those. So um, I think zone sampling would be better based on uh, yield data and understanding what different yield zones you have. Um, once you start creating those zones, and then you can kind of use them for uh, variable rate planning, you can use them for a lot of different things. So um, I would definitely look at zone. Um, it's going to take a little bit to understand and, and build those zones, but once you have them, it's actually a really nice thing to have. Um, the other thing I will talk about, uh, let's make this the last thing. Um, I really would understand if you're not doing soil sampling yourself, um, I would really have an in-depth conversa or conversation with the people you're doing the sampling with. Um, I've been around everything. Um, I've been around some people that pulled soil samples that, um, they take the cores, uh, directly out of the bucket or they even just dump them right in the bag as they pull them. Um, there's a lot of people that are trying to get out there to get as many acres done as they can. And then let's say they don't do as good of a job because they're just trying to get acres done. Um, so, um, there's a lot of labs that do a lot of different things. Um, some labs, most labs should take those and pulverize them and, um, kind of come up with a little bit better aggregates. Um, some soil labs will take those and they'll somewhat pulverize them and they'll kind of mix them up a little bit. But, um, you know, really what they're taking is like a, um, a very small part of a few grams of soil. So when you submit a pound and you're giving them an ounce of that pound, so you're basically, so we'll, let's say we'll do a five acre grid. Uh, for a five acre soil or soil sample, you're taking a pound of soil. So 10 million pounds, you're taking one of that. So you're one parts per million. <laughs> um, 
not even uh, 0.1 parts per million um, of what that actually is. And on top of that, you're taking another ounce of that. So you're like one sixteenth of that is actually going in to get sampled. So, you know, you're really, really kind of narrowing it down. So you, instead of, um, you know, you're, you're really taking a small part of that five acres uh, and actually sending it in. So um, you really want to make sure you get them right. Um, for me, when I take soil samples, um, I pay attention to soil moisture. Too dry or too wet can kind of vary the samples. Um, definitely too wet will really vary them. Um, the other part is going to be um, when you take the samples, I always would take them and, and kind of half grind them up. You know, not you know not to the point where there's not any little lumps, nothing, and you'll know, just totally pulverize them, but I would take them and at least kind of swish them around a little bit. Um, I would ask a lot of questions of the place you're going to go to. Um, the first thing I would ask them is how do they, um, when they take the samples, how do they put them in the bag? Um, if they say, well, we just dump them right in the bag and, and we take them right in and the lab takes care of the rest. Um, I would maybe look for somebody else or ask that, um, uh, they do mix your samples a little bit before they take them in. Um, the other thing is, you know, in, in zone sampling, they're going to pick a spot right in the middle of that, and they should drive around, at least walk around a little bit, uh, to get the aggregate cores. So there's supposed to be between 16 to 20 cores per sample. Um, some people will just take eight and just fill the bag up to the line. Um, they should really have just a little bit of extra soil uh, that they don't put in the bag because, you know, and realistically, 20 cores is not going to fit in that little bag. So. Um, they should still take 20 cores, make an aggregate sample, put it in the bag up to the level, get rid of the rest, um, and then submit it. Um, I would ask a little bit just some questions about um, just what their plan is, um, fully understand what they're going to do. Um, I would, I mean, you're basically, you're spending, I mean, it, it could be upwards of, um, I don't know, usually a sample is about $18, um, grid sampling, I've seen it four or five bucks an acre, uh, sometimes more, depending on what you're doing. There's, there's different various costs associated with it. Um, so uh, for me, if I'm going to spend 10 or 20 grand on soil sampling, um, I really want to make sure that we're going to get something that I can use. Um, you know, I've had it where we did soil sampling. Um, oh, it was... Uh, one year we had a soil sample that was considerably high. We'll say like 600 parts per million in phosphorus. It was ridiculously high. Um, so we went back out, used the uh, used the grid point, and took another sample. And it came back almost identical. So to me, that means that we were doing a good job. Um, what ended up being was that was where a pasture was. And literally the point was in the middle of where the manure pile used to be. So, yeah, it was, it was supposed to be high. Um, and, you know, manure piles are probably... A, 20 foot by 20 foot or so at that point in time, you know, when it actually happened. So we were getting that point pretty accurate. So to me, that means we were doing a good job. Um, I would just ask a lot of questions. Uh, if you get some really wishy-washy answers and you get the feeling that they just want to do it just to get some acres done and get paid to do it, um, maybe consider going somewhere else. Um, even some of the soil testing labs around us will do them fairly cheap. Um, or about the same cost. Um, so maybe even if you're dealing with a, a retailer and um, it, it may not hurt to go to directly to the lab they use 
which is really nice for us because the one we use is right in the town we farm in. Um, but that isn't always the case, but um, there's a lot of places that, that do soil sampling. Um, the other thing is, uh, if you're going to do it yourself, in, um, if it were me and, and having experience doing this, um, I would definitely talk to the labs directly. Um, it might be a little bit more convenient to take them right to the co-op or retailer, um, but they also will charge you quite a bit more. Um, so a, a local soil lab around us, they'll run a soil analysis for eight bucks um, for a farmer walking in the door, uh, if you have an account or whatever. Um, if you were to drop it off at a retail location, they're probably ch gonna charge you between 16 and $20. And to be honest, um, there's nothing outside of, you know, maybe they, they help you with understanding the samples. Um, there's not going to be a whole lot of any difference. You're going to get the same sample report. Um, all it was is they took care of making sure it got turned in and then they can bill you. Um, that's the same thing with anything, uh, any sampling. Um, I worked one place where the tissue samples were $50. Um, if you go direct to the lab, they're 25 bucks. So understand what your uh, what your local labs or what any labs will do uh, cost-wise. Um, you know, and the other thing is, you know, if you're going to talk to the lab directly, um, a lot of them have it on their website now, but you can still call them and talk to them and, and understand uh, what, what they consider like their base samples. Um, some places, honestly, I've seen some places that don't include CEC on the sample reports, which is really dumb. Uh, you definitely want to know CEC and organic matter. Um, some places will give you soil test levels for zinc, sulfur, uh, any micros you really want. Um, if you really want to go there, uh, it will tell you sulfur is pretty inconclusive. That's a hard one to get down. Uh, zinc isn't so bad. Uh, Imporin isn't so bad. Um, but I don't know if, if I would rely on any sulfur soil tests. Um, the other thing is going to be like nitrate sampling. Um, a lot of that stuff, you want to make sure you're pulling different depths. Um, and I'll say the same thing when you're asking questions to your uh, retailer, whoever's doing your soil sampling, um, ask them how consistent their depth is. Um, a lot of labs are calibrated to a certain depth. Um, if they're just going on pulling a soil sample and whatever comes out of the probe, they dump it in. So sometimes the probe gets plugged and we'll pull out a probe uh, that's got uh, three inches of soil in it and a big chunk of um, a big chunk of stock or something and that's not really accurate and that's not what you want uh, you want each one of them to be pretty much about the same depth um, and ask them if they know what their labs asking for so some labs will want six and a half inches some want seven inches some want 6.1 inches I mean it just depends um, I would definitely want to know if they know what that is uh, if they don't know that number I would walk um, I would definitely go somewhere else. Um, so yeah, when you're talking to a retailer, whoever's going to do soil sampling, or even if you do, uh, definitely understand, uh, the method they're going to do it in, well, what they're going to do with your sample once they've pulled it, um, how they're going to handle it, uh, how they're going to mix it. Um, and the other one is understanding what depth they're pulling it at. So if they don't know an answer to any of those three or four questions, um, I would definitely consider going elsewhere or at least talking to somebody else about it um it's it's really rare probably for that to happen where they will know the answer to all those but um you'll definitely want somebody that understands that um if they don't um then they got a fairly low understanding of what they're doing so um that's it we'll just talk we're going to end it there um there's 
tons of different ways we can talk about this, tons of different topics that can go off of this. But to me, it, this is more of a, a basic understanding of um, soil tests, how to read a soil test, and and understanding how to take and who what questions to ask when you're getting soil tests done. Um, really boring episode, um, but uh, it's definitely stuff that um, I think about quite a bit. Um, I will tell you, I was I worked in retail for a while. Um, let's see, I keep saying these cliches, but I worked in retail for long enough that um, I've been around all different people that do this. I've been around the guy that just gets as many acres done as possible. Um, I've been around the guy that does a really good job. Um, that's an agronomist that's doing it. Um, and I've been around the people that just don't really care. Um, they don't know what the heck they're doing. All they do is they go to where that point is on the map. They kind of take the bucket out, take 20 probes right in the same spot and dump it in the bag. And I've literally seen once where somebody just took a shovel, took the shovel on the ground, put the soil in the bag and then called it good. So, um, I've been around all of it. Um, I would say I've only very rarely been happy with the way samples were taken for my customers. And that made me um, get to the point where probably where I'm at, uh, where I didn't want to be in retail as much anymore. That It's not the soil sampling that made me quit, but um, it, it, it's part of it. You know, there, there's a bunch of different things. Um, if you really care about your customers and understand what's going on, you'll, you'll do this. Um, this is just a small part of service that that's very easy to get right. Um, it's going to take you a little bit longer, but for the amount of money you charge, you think you would want to make sure you do a great job. So anyway, we'll end it there. Um, I'll have probably future episodes where we talk about in each individual one of these. Um, if you're really on a high depth analysis and you think I'm full of crap, um, that's fine because there's not a lot of people on the same level you are. Um, there's quite a few people that are still in that early base stage uh, where they're trying to understand what's going on. Um, it's fairly rare for me to get questions about base saturation, um, understanding leaching uh, nutrients through the profile and, and trying to get our calcium magnesium ratios done. Um, those are, those are really high up uh, soil testing questions. So those, um, those are always fun conversations and they should be that they should be a, a, a frank and open discussion. Um, everybody has different opinions. Everybody has ways of doing it themselves. Um, and I, I really respect those. Those are fun for me. Um, I really like when we can get on those levels. But this purpose of this is basically just basis. So uh, if you want to flame me, flame me. I actually like it. Let's have a discussion. So anyway, uh, stay tuned. I should have some plenty more episodes. I'm going to try to get a few of these knocked off before planting season starts. And that way they're recorded. You can listen to them while you're driving in the tractor. And I don't have to record them while I'm driving in the tractor. So um, stay tuned and I'll have some more pretty soon.